0: coming of the tyrants. Although Alaric had struck at the centre, the Western Empire began to fall apart from the periphery. So, in surveying the barbarian realms that emerged in its stead, we must begin at the fringes. And nowhere did the collapse occur so swiftly as Britain, the last of the major Roman provinces to have been conquered and the first to be lost. During the crisis years of 406-11, Roman defences in Britain vanished. The army there had produced three would-be usurpers, Marcus, Gratian and Constantine III. But as it did so, the province's military defences were being systematically stripped. When the 5th century dawned, troops in Britain were in serious arrears with their wages and presumably very disgruntled. But before long there were none left to grumble about their lot. By 407, all had been withdrawn to defend Gaul and the Rhine frontier from barbarian incursions and to bolster Constantine's pretensions to the purple. Soon after, Roman civilian administrators were also on their way out. There is some contested evidence to suggest that in 410, the Emperor Honorius, besieged by Alaric in Ravenna, wrote to the major Roman cities in Britain and told them that they would be entirely responsible for defending themselves. If he did indeed send such a letter, it was no more than a statement of reality. With no army and no financial or bureaucratic links back to the imperial centre, Britain's ties to the Roman state withered almost immediately. By the 440s, most of the obvious social signs of Romanness, plush villas, sophisticated urban living, a sense of elite attachment to international culture, were in sharp decline in Britain. Estates were abandoned. Trade networks shriveled and dissolved. Towns shrank. Political units, tax regions, and spheres of government shrank alarmingly as the province shattered. The silver spoons, delicate pieces of gold jewellery, and mountains of Roman coin that were buried in the Hoxon Horde attest to the chaotic retreat of the Roman ruling class from Britain. All over the islands, rich families evacuated the failing state with all that they could carry, abandoning or burying that which they could not. The process of Britain's departure from the Roman Empire was hastened not only by the turbulence across the sea in Gaul and Italy, but by the arrival in Britain of significant numbers of warriors and their families from another part of Europe well outside the Empire. The eastern seaboard of Britain had long been a tempting entry point for raiding parties of Picts, Scots and Germanic tribes known collectively, if imprecisely, as Anglo-Saxons. There had been a serious invasion crisis in 367-8, known as the Great Conspiracy, in which a troop mutiny on Hadrian's Wall preceded a massive series of coastal raids by non-Roman-aligned northern British tribes, apparently in league with Saxons and others from outside the province. Now the same route lay open once again. From the early 5th century, Britain was steadily settled by war bands and migrant groups from the North Sea fringe. There was no single coordinated military invasion such as the Romans had landed in the time of Claudius or the Normans would stage in 1066. The invasions were piecemeal and staggered over many years. Some of the names later applied to the peoples who arrived included the Saxons, Angles and Jutes. But ethnic terminology would have mattered much less to 5th century Britons than observed reality. Roman functionaries and soldiers had disappeared across the sea in one direction, while Germanic settlers, bringing new languages, cultures and beliefs, arrived from another. At some time around 450, During the reign of the Emperor Valentinian III, the beleaguered chieftains trying to resist Saxon raids sent a begging letter known as the Groan of the Britons to the Roman generalissimo in the West, Aetius. Aetius was an old-fashioned war hero who specialised in fighting barbarians in a rearguard struggle for imperial honour. Clearly he was regarded as the last hope. The barbarians drive us to the sea, the sea drives us to the barbarians, wailed the British. Between these two modes of death, we are either killed or drowned. But Aetius declined to rescue them. Britain was already too far gone. The writer who preserved the groan of the Britons was a 6th century monk called Gildas, whose account of this turbulent period, on the ruin and conquest of Britain, described an epic struggle for mastery between invading Saxons and native Britons, culminating in a semi-legendary clash of arms known as the Battle of Baden, perhaps at some time late in the 5th century. It is often suggested that a decisive part in the Battle of Baden was played by King Arthur, sometimes identified as the nephew of a soldier called Ambrosius Aurelianus a gentleman who perhaps alone of all the Romans had survived the shock of this notable storm, wrote Gildas. The futile debate over whether Ambrosius Aurelianus was the real Arthur need not trouble us here. What is important is that after Baden, or at least by the time Gildas was writing, Britain was roughly partitioned along a diagonal northeast to southwest line. The Saxon kingdoms that coalesced on the eastern side of that line were tightly bound into trade and cultural networks across the North Sea, towards Scandinavia. Those on the other side looked to the Channel, the Irish Sea, and themselves. Neither to this day are the cities of our country inhabited as before, but being forsaken and overthrown, still lie desolate, Gildas wrote our foreign wars having ceased, but our civil troubles still remaining. Ultimately, Gildas viewed the agonies of the British after the Romans left as just punishment from God. Britain's rulers, he wrote, deserved everything they got, for they plunder and terrorise the innocent, they defend and protect the guilty and thieving, they have many wives, whores and adulteresses, swear false oaths, tell lies, reward thieves, sit with murderous men, And despise the humble. The Saxons, he thought, were devils. Of course, Gildas was a churchman, inclined to see the wrath of God and man's evil everywhere. His most famous aphorism is Britain has kings, but they are tyrants, she has judges, but they are unrighteous men. And his hysterical account can distract us from the fact that the Saxon barbarians were capable of dazzlingly high culture. Take, for example, the famous helmet unearthed at the ship burial site at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk. A piece of Roman-style head armour, complete with eerie face mask, wrought from iron and bronze, and decorated with dragon heads, which may once have belonged to King Redwald of East Anglia. It is a priceless piece of art, of which any Roman soldier would have been proud. Nevertheless, it is easy to understand the horror Gildas felt as he surveyed an age, of such disorienting demographic change and political reshaping. Mass migration, rightly or wrongly, stirs fear and loathing, for as the history of the Western Roman Empire makes abundantly clear, it has the power to turn worlds upside down. While Britain was seceding from the Roman West, elsewhere in the Empire an even more serious rupture was opening up. In this case, the Lords of Misrule were the Vandals, Unsettled by the Huns, many Vandals had joined in the great barbarian crossings of the river Rhine in 406 8. But this was only the beginning of their journey. From the Rhineland, the Vandals pushed south through the convulsing provinces of Roman Gaul, traversed the Pyrenees, and headed into Iberia. As they travelled, they fought against other barbarian tribes, including the Visigoths and the Suevi, whom they battled to a standstill at the rich and powerful city of Merida in 428. Then they moved on towards the southern tip of the peninsula. By this point, the Vandals numbered around 50,000 migrants in total, of whom perhaps 10,000 were seasoned fighting men. They were led by an extraordinarily resourceful and ambitious general called Gaiseric. Intelligent and spare in his habits, Gaiseric walked with a limp, having fallen from a horse in his youth. Critically for the Vandals, he had a deep affection for, and knowledge of, sailing and naval warfare. In May 429, Gaiseric loaded his followers and their possessions onto a fleet of ships and took them across the Strait of Gibraltar. His reasons for doing so have been debated at length, but it is likely that he was permitted to enter Roman North Africa by the governor there, Bonifacius, a close ally of Galla Placidia, mother of the Emperor Valentinian III and the power behind the throne in Ravenna. If this was so, it was a colossal error by Bonifacius. Having arrived on the southern shore of the Mediterranean, the Vandals turned sharply left and set off on a plunderous cakewalk through Roman territory, looting every significant city in their path. According to the Greek scholar Procopius, who took a keen interest in Vandal history, Bonifacius realized his error and tried to make amends. He besought the Vandals incessantly, promising them everything to remove from Libya. However, they did not receive his words with favor, but considered that they were being insulted, he wrote. In June 430, they arrived at the port city of Hippo Regis, now Anaba, in Algeria, and laid it under siege. St. Augustine, a citizen of Hippo, was lying in his sickbed as the Vandals arrived. He was doubly despondent at their presence, for not only were they barbarians, they were Christians of the Arian sect, rather than the Nicene rite to which Augustine belonged. He wrote to one fellow churchman, arguing that the best course of action for those in the Vandals' path was to flee until the menace had passed. But Augustine never took his own advice. He died in the summer of 4.30, with the barbarians still camped outside Hippo's walls. In August 431, the city fell, and Gaiseric made it the capital of the new barbarian kingdom he was building out of the Roman colonies along the coastal littoral of modern Algeria, Tunisia and Libya. Hippo was the Vandal capital for only a few years, for in 439 the Vandals took Carthage, the greatest city on the North African coast. The conquest was all too easy. In theory, the Vandals and Romans were at peace that year, but on the 19th of October, while most of Carthage's population watched entertainments at the Hippodrome, Gaiseric marched an army into the city. The attack was unannounced, unanticipated and unopposed. It was brazen almost beyond belief. Yet it worked. In a single day, the mighty city for which the Roman Republic had fought the Punic Wars between 264 BC and 146 BC Was severed from the empire. This was more than just a matter of wounded pride. The entire Roman economy depended on Carthaginian grain exports. Now these were cut off. In wresting Carthage and so much more of North Africa away from Roman control, the Vandals had sliced through the life route of the Western Empire. And in the years that followed, they were able to consolidate their hold over their southern Mediterranean kingdom. Gaiseric built and strengthened his fleet, and through his command of the southern Mediterranean coastline, was able to construct what amounted to a pirate polity, preying on local shipping and playing havoc with the busy trading networks that were essential to the economic health of Western Europe. He raided Sicily, and took control of Malta, Corsica, Sardinia and the Balearic Islands. In AD 455, he even led an army all the way to Rome, emulating Alaric by putting the Eternal City to its second sack of the century. He came back from this adventure with his pockets full. According to Procopius, Gaiseric placed an exceedingly great amount of gold and other imperial treasure in his ships, sailed to Carthage, having spared neither bronze nor anything else whatsoever in the palace. He plundered also the Temple of Jupiter Capitolinus and tore off half of the roof. Perhaps most scandalously of all, his booty included the western empress Licinia Eudoxia and her two daughters. They would remain honourable prisoners in Carthage for seven years, during which time one of the girls married Gaiseric's son and heir, Huneric. For Rome, this was nothing short of a disaster. For the Vandals, it was a triumph to trump their wildest dreams. Gaiseric had established a kingdom which, after his death in 477, he passed on to Huneric and, thereafter, a dynasty of Vandal kings. The eastern emperors tried to help, sending several naval fleets of their own in 460 and 468 to try and recapture Carthage and cut off the snake's head, but they failed. The Roman west was left battered and critically diminished. Unsurprisingly, those on the wrong side of the Vandal conquest left scathing accounts of their times. One especially vehement critic was a churchman known as Quadvult Deus, Bishop of Carthage and a correspondent of St. Augustine. Having made his distaste for Arianism publicly known, Quadvult Deus was taken captive, put into a rickety boat with no sails or oars, and shoved out to sea, eventually washing up in Naples, where he would live his life in exile. In his letters, Quadvault described the Vandals as heretics, devils, and wolves. Was Quadvault being fair? Certainly, the Vandals were fierce and violent occupiers who shed much blood during their conquest of North Africa. Then again, violent bloodshed is the business of occupying forces. In 146 BC, the Roman army, under Scipio Aemilianus, had hardly treated Carthage civilly. They had burned it to cinders, roasted citizens in their homes, seized all the surrounding land, and taken as many as 50,000 slaves. Likewise, before the Roman emperors converted to Christianity, they had sponsored vigorous bouts of anti-Christian persecution in the province, with victims including the so-called skeleton martyrs of AD 180, who were executed for their faith and their failure to swear obedience to the then emperor Marcus Aurelius. The Vandals were unflinchingly severe in persecuting Nicene Christians, but even so, there was nothing intrinsically barbaric in the violence that engulfed North Africa under the Vandals, and this was simply the way of the world. Indeed, we might go further, for there is some evidence to suggest that the Vandal kingdom in North Africa was far from a land of pirates and demons, but actually a fairly stable polity, whose rulers were by no means seen by everyone as tyrants. Although the Vandals cut off the vital grain supply chain between Carthage and Rome, there was not a total economic blockade. Shipments of popular redware pottery continued across the Mediterranean. The Vandals minted their own imperial-style coins and evidently got along well enough with the local population, who vastly outnumbered them, to stave off popular revolt. They do not seem to have disrupted the internal mechanisms of Roman government, surviving Vandal-era mosaics hint at a fine and luxurious material culture. One piece, today on display in the British Museum, but originally unearthed at Bord Jadid, depicts a North African horseman riding away from a large walled city. Even Procopius, who wrote in detail about the Vandals and their relations with Rome, admitted that these barbarians knew how to live. His account is worth quoting at length. For of all the nations which we know, that of the Vandals is the most luxurious. For the Vandals, since the time when they gained possession of Libya, used to indulge in baths, all of them, every day, and enjoyed a table abounding in all things, the sweetest and best that the earth and sea produce. And they wore gold very generally, and clothed themselves in silks and passed their time, thus dressed, in theatres and hippodromes, and in other pleasurable pursuits, and above all else in hunting, and they had dancers and mimes and all other things to hear and see which are of a musical nature or otherwise merit attention among men, and the most of them dwelt in parks, which were well supplied with water and trees, and they had great numbers of banquets, and all manner of sexual pleasures were in great vogue among them. The Vandals did not have very long to live in this state of heightened sensuality and sexual freedom, as we shall discover But while they did, it seems that they affected to be more Roman than the Romans whose empire they had, to use the modern idiom, vandalised. From Attila to Odoesa At any time since the end of the Punic Wars, losing Carthage and suffering the emergence of a new and destabilising kingdom in North Africa would have been a grave problem for the Roman West. In the middle of the 5th century, It was all the more so because, at exactly the same time, the emperors in Ravenna were forced to deal with the emergence of another rival state on a vulnerable frontier. This was the short lived but disruptive kingdom of Attila the Hun. A genuinely larger than life character whose name remains notorious today, Attila took command of the Huns in the mid 430s, shortly before Carthage fell to the Vandals and in the two decades of his reign, he dragged the Western Roman Empire yet further along its path to ruin. According to the Greek diplomat and historian Priscus, Attila was a short man with a flat nose and thin eyes set within a large, swarthy face. His thin beard was speckled grey, and he carried himself proudly among his courtiers, rolling his eyes here and there, so the power of his proud spirit appeared in his body's movement. He was a considered, self-possessed leader, but if provoked could be fierce. He was a man born to shake the nations, the scourge of the world, thought Priscus, remarking that Attila's reputation alone was enough to terrify most men. The Western Emperor Valentinian III went further. To him, Attila was a universal despot, who wishes to enslave the whole earth. He requires no reason for battle, but thinks whatever he does is justified. He deserves everyone's hatred. Attila was born in the first decade of the 5th century, the son of a Hunnic leader called Rua, who died in 435, supposedly when he was struck by lightning. By then, the Huns had already been active, from the Caucasus to the Hungarian plain for two generations. But once Attila reached adulthood, they were no longer entirely itinerant nomads. Their tribes had become established across an area that sprawled from the Rhineland to the Black Sea. They had started to follow the rule of a single dynasty, whose royal court was semi-sedentary, and located in a suite of buildings, rather than around the saddle of the king, wherever he might happen to be. The heart of the Hunnic realm was the Great Hungarian Plain, the only grassland in Europe large enough to feed the enormous numbers of horses on which the Hunnic war machine relied. But, as Valentinian observed, the plain alone was not enough for the Huns. Their political system was rooted in forcing other groups to submit to their mastery, rather than acquiring fixed parcels of territory. So, as they sought to expand, to dominate, and to exact tribute from their neighbours, a large number of Germanic peoples had to accept Hunnic authority, including Goths, Alans, Samartians, Suevi and Gepids, as well as tribes like the Skiri, Heruli and Rugi. By the middle of the 5th century, the Huns were becoming a serious nuisance to the Romans. The Huns' original rise in the east had been predicated on excellent horsemanship and superior military technology in the form of the composite bow. These gave huge tactical field advantage over the nomadic peoples they drove before them, but was of less use against imperial powers whose people occupied walled cities and whose troops commanded timber or stone-built fortresses. However, at around the time of Attila's accession, the Huns added to their armoury a critical new technological skill, siege engineering. Although they could not match the resources of the great powers whose lands they neighbored, principally the Sassanid Persians and Romans, they posed a very serious danger. They could stage campaigns far more devastating than mere horseback raids, for when they captured cities, the Huns could take hundreds or thousands of captives at a time, to be driven back into Hunnic territory and either enslaved or ransomed at high cost. In the early 5th century, there were long periods when the Huns entered partnerships with the Roman army, selling their military prowess as mercenaries. But during the 440s, Attila began to send missions against Eastern Roman cities. His riders and siege engineers left towns like Belgrade, Singidunum, Nish, Nessus, and Sophia, Serdica, smouldering, with dead bodies heaped in the streets and live ones led away in prisoner columns. Huge areas were depopulated, particularly in the Balkans, where it is possible that Attila took between 100,000 and 200,000 prisoners in total. His price for peace was gold, and a lot of it. In particularly lucrative years, Attila and his troops earned as much as £9,000 of Roman gold, in private ransoms and official settlements for peace comfortably more than the tax revenue of many Roman provinces during peacetime. He also managed to extract from the Eastern Emperors an honorary generalship in the Roman army, with an annual pay packet to boot. Not long after he became sole ruler of the Huns, Attila switched his focus of attack from the Eastern Roman Empire to the West. In AD 450, he broke off cordial relations with Valentinian III's court in Ravenna, Crossed the Rhine and embarked on a rampage around Gaul so shocking that it would live infamous in popular memory for more than 1500 years. The pretext for this invasion was said later to have been a direct appeal sent to Attila from Valentinian's sister Honoria, who asked Attila to rescue her from dishonourable imprisonment to which she had been sentenced for a tryst with one of her servants. This may or may not be true. Regardless, In early 451, Attila thundered into northern France with a large, multi-ethnic army, including Goths, Alans and Burgundians. They crossed the Rhine and rampaged all the way to the River Loire. A later chronicle recorded the Huns slaying the people with the edge of the sword and killing the very priests of the Lord before the holy altars. When they arrived at Orléans, they strove to take it by the mighty hammering of battering rams. The insult to Roman honor was almost incalculable, and it was only through a monumental effort that Attila was stopped when an allied Roman and Visigoth army, led by the mighty general Aetius, ground out a rare and bloody battlefield victory over the Huns on the 20th of June 451, an engagement known as the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. The slaughter of all those who died there was incalculable for neither side gave way, wrote Prosper. But the Roman and Gothic army narrowly prevailed, breaking the momentum of Attila's campaign and sending him back east across the Rhine. Unused to such humiliation, the Hun leader called an end to the campaigning seasons, supposedly having first considered suicide to assuage his shame. However, he was not finished with the West. In 452 he launched a new attack, this time into the Italian peninsula. Weakened by a severe famine, Italy was in no shape to resist Attila. The cities of Friuli, Padua, Pavia and Milan all fell before his siege engines and swords. Aquilia, one of Italy's richest and most prestigious cities, which stood at the head of the Adriatic, was taken by storm and razed a sack that had deep and lasting implications for the locality. Providing in the long term for the rise of a new city of Venice, it seemed as though all of Italy lay before the Huns, until, as later legend had it, the Bishop of Rome, Pope Leo I, the Great, mustered all his holy majesty and persuaded Attila to leave. One account of this miraculous meeting claimed that when Leo met Attila, the Hun inspected the Pope’s splendid vestments silently, as if thinking deeply. And lo, suddenly, there were seen the apostles Peter and Paul, clad like bishops, standing by Leo, the one on the right hand, the other on the left. They held swords stretched out over his head and threatened Attila with death if he did not obey the Pope's command. This was a great yarn, but more likely the dwindling resources of a ravaged Italy, disease among Attila's followers, and the prospect of losses to the Eastern Roman army back in the Hunnic heartlands, persuaded him it was time to go home. In 453, Attila died, apparently choking to death on his own blood, thanks to the combination of a massive drinking binge and an equally massive nosebleed, on the night of his wedding to a beautiful woman called Ildiko. Whatever the truth, the Hunnic empire over which Attila had stretched his hand, self-combusted, Astonishingly quickly. Yet this was not wholly good news for Rome. True, a tyrant and tormentor who had scourged the Western Empire was dead. Yet the Huns' collapse as a unified state had severe repercussions, for it sent scattering across Europe more huge groups of unsettled Germanic tribespeople, now freed from Hunnic dominion. History was repeating itself. For twenty years after Attila, Groups of restless, wandering migrants were again on the move. The Huns were dispersed, no longer operating as a distinct political and military unit, but their legacy lived on. Dealing with the consequences of Attila's death was a daunting prospect, and the task was made all the harder by the fact that it coincided with a new political crisis in Ravenna. In September 454, Aetius, Victor at the Catalonian plains was murdered. His killer was none other than the Emperor Valentinian, who had been encouraged by factions at court to regard his finest general, a veteran of thirty years' service, as a rival for the throne. During a finance meeting, Valentinian cut Aetius to ribbons with his sword. Later, fishing for praise among his courtiers, Valentinian asked whether they thought it was a deed well done. One replied, whether well or not I do not know, but know that you cut off your right hand with your left. Revenge indeed followed quickly. In March 455, Valentinian was murdered by two of Aetius's grieving bodyguards, who ambushed him during an archery contest. Priscus heard that a swarm of bees sucked up the blood that oozed from the Emperor's death wounds. And so began a cycle of coup and counter-coup which saw nine emperors occupy the western throne in twenty years. Few of them died in their beds, and politics at the court in Ravenna were dominated by the struggles of strongmen, notably the Germanic-born Flavius Ricimer, to cling to power while dealing with barbarian incursions throughout the collapsing empire. With Vandals in Africa, Visigoths and Suevi carving up Aquitaine, Iberia and southern Gaul, and new powers, including the Franks and Burgundians, also on the march, there was plenty for generals like Ricimer to do. But it was also the very definition of a losing game. In the west, Rome now controlled less territory than it had for more than 1,000 years, little more than the Italian peninsula between the Alps and Sicily, along with patches of Gaul and Dalmatia. Tax and provisioning networks were in disarray the army was shrunken, underfunded and institutionally mutinous. The strongest bonds of political loyalty across the West had ceased to be between disparate peoples and their emperors or the abstract imperial system. They were now to the tribe, the general and the momentarily ascendant warlord. Landowners across the provinces had paid tribute to and held office in the Roman Empire on the understanding that it offered military might to defend their lives, laws to protect their property, and an aristocratic culture to bind them to their neighbours. Now, all of this was broken. Rome's consensus, its collective identity, had been shattered. An end was in sight. The last of the Western Roman emperors is traditionally reckoned to be Romulus Augustus, nicknamed. Augustulus, or Little Emperor. A puppet ruler, he was aged around 15 when, in October 475, he was raised to the throne as an avatar for his father, the general Orestes, who had at one time served as a secretary to none other than Attila. Amid the convulsions of his times, a young emperor like Romulus was a sitting duck. Moreover, he had a rival for the title in the form of a former governor of Dalmatia. Julius Nepos, who had the blessing of the eastern emperor, Zeno. The hapless teenager held on to his position for just 11 months, before a barbarian crisis brought him down. This time the instigators were a coalition of Gothic tribespeople, the Heruli, Rugi and Sciri, who had been set loose from the collapsing Hunnic Empire and absorbed into the Roman army. Deciding that they deserved better reward for their service, in 476, they rebelled under a leader called Odoacer, a canny and resourceful officer distinguished by his physical height, his bushy moustache, and his belief, gathered from a youthful meeting with the Catholic holy man Severinus of Noricum, that he was destined for great things. In 476, Odoacer marched a sizeable body of troops against Ravenna. On the 2nd of September, they defeated Romulus Augustulus's father. Orestes, in battle at Pavia, and executed him. Two days later, the 16 year old emperor was forced to abdicate and sent off to live out his retirement with relatives. Now, in his place, Odoacer ruled Italy, not as an emperor, but a king, Rex. He explicitly acknowledged supreme Roman authority as stemming from Constantinople, though an eastern emperor, Zeno, was unimpressed and refused to acknowledge the new arrangement. Odoacer proved to be a tenacious leader of Italy and its surroundings, limiting his horizons to defending what was left of the Roman West and successfully conniving at the murder of Julius Nepos, the one remaining serious claimant to the throne. After Julius Nepos's death, Odoacer sent the imperial regalia, the crown and cloak, to Constantinople, marking the physical impossibility of making another Western emperor. With that, the title slipped into oblivion. It was a historic landmark, but only the logical result of the steady ruin of Roman networks, power structures, and political units which had taken place over the previous 70 years. Endgame By 493, King Odoacer had ruled Italy for more than a decade and a half, longer by far than any of the petty Western emperors had managed in the years that preceded his reign but holding on to power had not been easy, and his relationship with Constantinople vacillated between uneasy and fraught. He did exceptionally well to survive amid a time of relentless change, and the intertwined pressures of mass migration and collapsing political certainties, but eventually he fell victim to the forces that had created him. The blow was struck, perhaps inevitably, by yet another Gothic leader. By the end of the 5th century, Goths of various flavours could be found all over Europe. The Visigoths, the branch who had originally stormed Rome in 410 under the command of Alaric, had energetically established a kingdom with its capital at Toulouse. At its maximum extent, their rule ran from the River Loire in central France all the way to the southern tip of Iberia. Far to the east of them, in the Balkans, roamed the other significant branch of the Goths a loose federation of many Germanic tribes known as the Ostrogoths. At the end of the 5th century, their leader was Theodoric Amal. Theodoric had received a very conventional classical upbringing. He was born to a leading Gothic family within the Hunnic Empire at around the time of Attila's death in 454. However, around the time of the Huns' implosion, Theodoric, aged around seven, was sent to Constantinople. He was officially a hostage, a human guarantor of peace terms between the Eastern Emperor and the Ostrogoths. But during his time in the capital, Theodoric received an elite education which moulded him into a literate, cultured young aristocrat, barbarian born, but otherwise roundly Romanized. When he was about 16, Theodoric's time in Constantinople drew to a close. He returned to his Ostrogothic people and by the 470s he had risen to become their king. At first, this brought him into conflict with a rival from another Gothic tribal group, Theodoric Strabo, the Squinter, whom he defeated and killed. Then in the 480s, he led his people into a running conflict with the Eastern Emperor Zeno, which culminated in 487, when Theodoric led an army to lay siege to Constantinople, the city that had given him so much. By now, Zeno was thoroughly weary with Theodoric, but he also saw an opportunity. From Italy, King Odoacer had been making aggressive advances on Eastern Roman territory. Zeno decided to solve both his problems in a single stroke. He made peace with Theodoric and sent him west, with a simple bargain dangling before him. If Theodoric could depose Odoacer, he could have Italy for himself. Barbarian was now turned against Barbarian. In the summer of 489, a vicious war broke out between Theodoric and odoacer In one early battle, fought at the end of August that year on the Isonzo River, the location of a dozen terrible clashes nearly 15 centuries later during the First World War, odoacer's army lay in wait for Theodoric's men, but were beaten and sent scattering backwards into Italy. In 490, Odoacer besieged Theodoric in Pavia. Subsequently, the two leaders' armies clashed repeatedly, and slowly, but surely, the war turned in Theodoric's favour. In 493, he had driven Odoacer back to Ravenna, where he set his final siege. After several months of heavy blockade, winter had set in, and with it, a stalemate. Unable to fight on, Odoacer sued for peace, and the two leaders agreed upon a pact by which they would split the kingdom between them. On the 15th of March, 493, a grand banquet was assembled to celebrate this happy end to a gruelling war. It would be the last banquet Odoacer ever tasted. As Odoacer sat at the feast, he was seized by Theodoric's men. Ambushed and outnumbered, he could not defend himself but only watch in horror as Theodoric advanced on him with his sword drawn. Theodoric leaped forward and struck Odoacer on the collarbone with his sword, while Odoacer cried out, Where is God? recorded a later Greek historian called John of Antioch. The blow was mortal, for it pierced Odoacer's body through to the lower part of the back. Theodoric sneered at his fallen rival. This scoundrel does not even have a bone in his body. Then he and his henchmen headed out into Ravenna to hunt and kill Odoace's family and associates. In a matter of hours, the coup was complete. It had taken him three and a half years, but Theodoric was now king of Italy. After 493, the Ostrogoths settled around Ravenna and several other northern Italian cities, and over the following three decades, Theodoric undertook an audacious new programme of state-building, following in the grandest Roman traditions. His campaigns in Italy had been relentless, and his final seizure of the throne, bloody and ruthless. But Theodoric had no intention of a further bloodletting among an already beleaguered Italian elite. He resisted purging the aristocrats and bureaucracy of his new kingdom, and sent embassies to Constantinople to confirm his legitimacy in the eyes of the emperor there, playing up his Roman education and calling his own royal rule a copy of the one empire. Around 497, his energetic sycophancy bore fruit, as Zeno's successor, Anastasius I, cautiously recognized his kingship. Although many squabbles with Constantinople lay ahead, Theodoric was momentarily assured of his acceptability to the Roman establishment. He therefore set about imitating Romanness to the full. Although an Arian Christian, he made strenuous efforts to accommodate and respect the Nicene bishops and Church of Rome. He emphasised obedience to Roman law codes, rather than issuing his own, as was the practice in many of the nascent barbarian states of the West, not least the kingdoms of the Franks and Burgundians. Through military campaigns and marriage alliances, he secured peace with the Vandals of North Africa, and established close political ties with the sprawling kingdom of the Visigoths, where in 511 he imposed his own king, his grandson, Amalric, assembling a huge pan-Gothic kingdom which extended from the Atlantic Ocean to the Adriatic Sea. Theodoric was destined for the sobriquet, the Great, and he lived his life like he knew it. In showpiece cities such as his capital, Ravenna, he spent prodigiously on defensive walls, grand palaces, basilicas, mausoleums and public works, decorated by master craftsmen. A visit even today to Ravenna reveals the stunning artistic vision of the Ostrogothic king. The mosaic decorations in the Basilica of Santa Polinare Nuovo, much of which was created under Theodoric's commission, are breathtaking. These and other monuments in the city, including Theodoric's mausoleum, stand testament to the surprising glory of the new barbarian era. Theodoric self-consciously styled his kingship on the model of the late Roman emperors, But his was not a Roman Empire. Across the West, things had changed forever. No matter how magnificently and conventionally Theodoric comported himself, and notwithstanding the fact that he reigned for more than 30 years, by the time the Ostrogoth king died in AD 526, the world had shifted radically. Not only had the ethnic identities of rulers and landowners changed, so had their political horizons and the systems of government. The empire lived on in Constantinople, where many new challenges, new religions, new technologies, new networks, and new diseases would remould it during the centuries to come. But in the West, kings and kingdoms were rapidly supplanting emperors and empires, ushering in an age that will, when we turn to it again, look more recognizably medieval than the world of wandering barbarians and child emperors has thus far. What a strange, lurching time it had been, in the century and a bit, since the Huns had crossed the Volga in 370. Everything had been turned upside down, heaved into motion through the irresistible power of climatic fluctuation and human migration, allied to the usual random historical movers of chance, ambition and individual agency. For those at the time, life could seem bewildering, and it is perhaps not surprising that writers of the 4th, 5th and 6th centuries turned to a metaphor that would prove wildly popular throughout the medieval West, that of Fortune's Wheel. Ammianus Marcellinus had seen events in the 4th century in this way, and so too did another notable author at the other end of the period, who lived and worked under Theodoric in Ravenna. Anicius Manlius Severinus Boethius, usually just Boethius, was born to a well bred Roman family in Italy the year before the last Western emperor, young Romulus Augustulus, was turfed out of office by Odoacer. Boethius had a brilliant mind and impeccably aristocratic credentials, and by the age of 25 he had become a senator in Theodoric's mock Roman kingdom. A quarter century later, in 522, Noethius, now middle-aged, had risen to the highest rank in the government bureaucracy, that of Magister officiorum. But from such a height, it was a long way to fall. In 523, Theodoric was nearing the end of his life, and trouble was afoot in his kingdom. Tension had arisen with the eastern emperor Justin I, and rumours dogged the senate of traitors there who were in contact with Constantinople. During a heated debate on the matter, Boethius found himself accused of shielding enemies of the state. As a result, he was arrested, imprisoned, tried, and sentenced to death. Throughout his life, Boethius had written on a wide range of subjects. His interests included mathematics, music, philosophy, and theology. But he composed his most famous work in jail while awaiting execution for his crimes. The Consolation of Philosophy attempted to place earthly troubles in a divine context. Written in the form of a dialogue between Boethius and Lady Philosophy, it asked its readers to accept that there were higher powers at work behind the vicissitudes of man's fleeting life. In the course of his musings, he turned to the notion of fortune's wheel. So now you have committed yourself to the rule of fortune, you must acquiesce in her ways, he wrote. If you are trying to stop her wheel from turning, you are of all men the most obtuse. Shortly after he finished his work, the great philosopher was horribly tortured and clubbed to death. Within two years, the great Ostrogothic king Theodoric had also breathed his last. Ahead of them, a strange new world was opening up.